Cooperative Journal, where I spotlight the stories of how people are collectivizing to meet their needs locally and globally beyond the extractive economic system. Mumbit's Freedom Farm is a black and brown-led cooperative farm located at the base of a mountain in Sheffield, Massachusetts. It is a holistic community sanctuary for connection, creativity, education, and wellness. The name is in reverence to Elizabeth Mumbit Freeman, who was an enslaved African nurse, midwife, and herbalist who sued for her freedom in Sheffield and won. The land is abundant with the flowing brook, natural spring, waterfalls, forest trails, and a diversity of natural life. In this episode, I speak with member De'Ara Wright about their journey from the city towards collective rural land stewardship. We talk about the power of the land to heal trauma, barriers they experienced when trying to purchase land, how they got into a mutual benefit non-extractive land agreement, food and land as a source of liberation, benefits and challenges of cooperative farming, establishing local relationships to build financial security and community, as well as their plans to create an ecosystem of homesteads and sanctuaries cooperatively owned and managed by Black, Indigenous, people of color. Welcome, Diara, to the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time and energy to meet with me this morning. I'm so excited to learn about Mumbit's Freedom Farm and what inspired its creation. Very rare that there's farmers actually collectively owning the land, living on it, and cultivating. So I'd love to hear more. Great. Um, thank you so much, Ebony, for the welcome and the, and the invitation. Um, yeah, it's an interesting journey that has evolved into Mumbet's Freedom Farm. Um, I would start with the fact that um, it's truly like a part of, well, really, when we thought about this space, um, it was about food as nourishment, of course, for the body and for the community, as well as a rooted place to start when thinking about developing and co-creating community sanctuary and what it meant to have sanctuary for uh, black and brown folks, queer folks, and um, how that like food, yes, the farm is essential to our lives and you know, having our hands in the earth and being uh, autonomous in that is critical to just what we think liberatory living is. And we're multifaceted beings who are artists, who are parents, who are, you know, educators, healing practitioners. So also through this project, we're looking to um, explore what it means to have an integrated idea of what liberated work around land and food can be. And so programming is also a key part of what we're doing, uh, programming that involves youth, um, education, but also um, healing opportunities, um, connection, opportunities for connection, 
um, opportunities to reconnect with each other and the land. Um, so we, we found ourselves in Sheffield, Massachusetts, and we, I'm speaking of, um, we're a cooperative right now of three people. So myself, Steph Wiley, and Sundar Ashni. And we've known each other, all of us, for over um, 15 plus years and have been in relationship in different ways over that time. Mm -hmm. And so before landing in Sheffield, we've been developing um, a concept uh, called Dandelion Homesteads, which is a an developing concept and developing idea of an ecosystem of what it means to have homesteads um, and sanctuary cooperatively stewarded and owned and managed and enjoyed by BIPOC folks. And so, um, so the idea of home is really critical to that and um, what it means to live cooperatively and have cooperative business models that support that thriving. So this is something we actually had been working on before the pandemic and um, Steph and I, we were kind of like moving upstate from Brooklyn, <laughs> um, Ashni as well, moving upstate from Brooklyn kind of before the pandemic. And um, we were looking for land actually up in upstate New York, essentially to start um, what we knew that was gonna be a farm and sanctuary. We didn't know about Mumbet at this time because Mumbet is so rooted in Sheffield, Massachusetts. So we'll, I'll talk more about that. But um, we were looking at upstate New York and just ran into so many different things around real estate and people coming from the city. Um, we, were, we actually were in contracts on a couple of things before the pandemic kind of got into a heavy, heavy place. And the difference between like the competition of real estate before that and, you know, after February, March, April. Um, yeah, we just, people were coming up from like the city and or not even coming up and buying land like sight unseen, <laughs> you know? Mm. So it became just a different environment. And so the three of us found ourselves living cooperatively um, in Sheffield, Massachusetts with about seven or seven other folks. Um, some we knew, some we didn't at all. And um, it was a really harmonious experience. And so where we were living at Racebrook Lodge on the other side of the brook is this farmland. And so we actually do not currently own the land. It is a mutual exchange, like a mutual benefit. Um, yeah, a non-extractive land agreement that we have at this time. So, um, so that's also a journey too, because <laughs> the, the ideal would be, um, as we think about other homesteads and other projects, is that it's uh, owned, Black-owned, BIPOC-owned, cooperatively owned and or stewarded. Um, but the way this happened was like this organic flow of we were living right across the brook from this land. And we learned at that time in living in Sheffield, just cooperatively um, in this pod, basically a COVID pod, um, we started learning more about Elizabeth Freeman, Elizabeth Mumbet Freeman, her story. 
And so then she became very essential to the the ancestral like story of what it meant to like create a liberated sanctuary space on that specific land. Mm. Wow, what a journey. <laughs> Uh, and I really appreciate you also like framing it as a community sanctuary and the healing that comes from that too, because like our African ancestors, like the land was not a sanctuary once they were brought over. And so like, I think that's a form of healing that generational trauma to create a space where like they can yeah. receive the healing from the earth, but also to be in like to be free in community with each other and learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And um and to also like transmute the what would have been negative energy from that land before, which I know you'll talk about as you get into like more of mum bits, which I wanna ask you after this but also rewriting um what it meant to have land after slavery which was like sharecropping and that now y'all are in a position where you're not owning the land but it's mutual benefit and so to also like reframe the lens of that is really beautiful Um, But ultimately, yes, the goal is to own the land, and I'm sure that will come soon. And so is the idea for Dandelion Homestead to, like, support incubating other BIPOC-led co-ops around the nation? Yeah, so whether we start, help to, to spark or start, or we support the development of cooperative um, cooperatives across the nation or even regionally in different regions, um, but definitely nationally. Um, yeah, we would be supporting and being kind of like um, a resource and the conduit and um, even a mo- uh, an opportunity for people to model, like as we get stronger in figuring out, okay, this is, the organizational structure that works for us, or these are the tools that we look to to be successful and being able to help steward other cooperatives into development and then, but also stay connected as an ecosystem to be in support. So let's say, um, you know, let's say there's a group of folks who wanna partner and figure out a way to get support from Dandelion Homesteads to have a homestead in North Carolina. Um, You know, we would, you know, if they, their business model that supports that, um, well, for one thing I want to say, we we lead with this idea of home because um, every project won't necessarily have housing definitely on on the land, but we are, as we think about our expansion and and partnership, that housing is a key, like home and housing are the key things that will make these projects sustainable. So whether that housing is nearby or it's on the land, housing, and we know in general, (laughs) um, people being able to stay connected to land and stay um, to 
sustain the work of what it means to work cooperatively and live cooperatively, having um, affordable and um, accessible housing that people can depend on is like a key component. So yeah, we would be supporting that development. And yeah, we're working with um, a cooperative development institute and a few other folks to get training training and support with thinking about multi-stakeholder cooperatives um, and ways that potentially folks could be um, a member cooperative or a complete like part of, you know, Dandelion Cooperative Network. Um, but yeah, we want to help steward that development for other folks, but it's not like here, you know, here's the support. Good luck with that. It's like staying rooted and you know and we think about things in a regional way too because um you know if we have <clears throat> multiple projects in this region which is like you know berkshire taconic hudson valley new york city region um we can share resources you know maybe you know and there's another one in massachusetts and they their business cooperative business is a dispensary you know because there's a history of more access to getting, you know, um, a license for cannabis distribution. So, but, you know, but maybe they buy their veggies from us in partnership in a discounted or in exchange, maybe they're exchanges. Um, but yes, it's like, how do we help spark and start, but how do we help to sustain the ecosystem and tap into other ecosystems too? Mm. Yeah, I also see home as, even if it's not like your physical home, for me, it's like, I've had a hard time finding like home, but I've found sanctuary like places that felt like home. So creating an ecosystem of places where BIPOC people can go to and feel like home, even if it's not their physical home, is so integral. And, um, and I also agree with working, having like regional networks too, because laws are different, circumstances are very different. I'd love to hear more about the history of the land and where the name Mumbit's Freedom Farm came from. Sure. Um, so the land currently is stewarded and owned by this, a family who, um, is interesting because this, the one partner is uh, Pakistani. She's Pakistani, he's uh, white. And so the two of them, um, you know, in partnership with them, they've, I feel like their family, so his grand, his father purchased the land in the nineties and it's a lodge, it's a, it's a parcel that is adjacent to the lodge that they own and run as a family. It's called Racebrook Lodge. So the parcel is like this other section that's on the other side of the brook. And so over the years, they've had um, the, the wherewithal to really center this idea of stewarding land in reverence for, you know, the, um, indigenous folks who were there stewarding first stewards of the land. They've wanted healing and um, community and connection to happen on that land. 
and it has happened, um, you know, within their time, it's happened in sporadic ways. And they, when we were living with, we were living with them, they were part of the COVID pod. <laughs> so when we were living with them, it was just this moment of like getting to know each other. We didn't really even know um, Ashni, Steph and I didn't know about the land um, when we first got to the pod. Um, so it, it felt like the land was just there. It wasn't being, um, it had been kind of left after other stewards had, hadn't really followed through in a certain way. And the family didn't have the capacity to really activate it in a way that felt in alignment. Um, so we really kind of, um, yeah, at the same time, his father, who's 86 and still out there, like doing things on the land, had mentioned to us about Elizabeth Freeman, um, who is Mumbet. Mumbet, uh, we were also hearing about Mumbet from people in town and people in um, our newer network of community. And so at the same time, we're learning about this land and their relationship to it. We're learning about Elizabeth Mumbet Freeman. So Mumbet was an enslaved African woman who um, sued her enslaver for her freedom um, and won. And it was through the court system. And it was the first uh, victory of this type um, ever. And it, it kind of launched, or, or I would say like, um, created momentum around other freedom cases to come up and, and it really informed a lot around the emancipation of folks, of black folks in Massachusetts and therefore emancipation across the nation. So for us, like growing up, I'm from Nashville originally. I lived in Maryland area, DC. I was in Brooklyn for at least 17 years. And I'm like, how did I not know? I'm living, you know, doing, I started community work through freedom schools, like working in through it, like a Black Panther radical education lens. And I was like, how did I not know about Elizabeth Mumbet Freeman? <laughs> so, so she became like really present in our work and kept coming up, you know, as we were on the lands, like her voice and her, her like, yeah, her presence. And so, um, and she's very much, Sheffield, the town is very proud of the fact that at that town, it's, just, it's a small town, but, you know, the historical society, they have all this information about her and um, they're building a statue in her honor this year. And there's a whole street, like a, a highway type of street dedicated to her path, um, her pathway to freedom. And so we're like, OK, so these white folks out here are like, you know, they're trying to <laughs> they're trying to really like claim black history as their history too. Like this is a part of their history. So we started to feel better about like, when we thought about this land and even just moving beyond this feeling of like, wow, we didn't plan to partner with a mixed family or a parcel of land that had a history of white land ownership and a present current like white ownership, you know, um, dynamic. And so that part we were like, we didn't plan it, but what does this mutual benefit look like? And they actually, as a family, that was their offer of like, you know, it wasn't about exchange of money. It was, are we stewarding the land with, with respect? Like what's happening on the lands? Like 
is it community minded and we actually sell our vegetables back to their their restaurant <laughs> you know we're not <laughs> you know um we discount it in community but in the same way like people that want to stay at the lodge or be a part of something at the lodge they get a discount too if they're connected to the farm in some way or our community so we just are exploring this kind of like what does this exchange look like um and you know and elizabeth mumbet freeman when she emancipated so she um took on the name elizabeth freeman when she emancipated herself and then she moved to stockbridge and over some years later she became became a very um um substantial like landowner like she ended up procuring land and becoming a landowner and so we're also clear that this farm is like also her victory farm it's like a victory energy like this the moment of victory is like infusing our work she was also a doula and an herbalist you know wow. so she's just coming through she's like i'm an herbalist i'm a doula what y'all about to do in my in this home town and in the spirit of her, you know, we look forward to becoming landowners too, cooperatively and in ways that are, um, you know, in liberated ways. So, yeah, that's, I would say that's the shorter story of like how we came into this land, but there was this synergy around us becoming in relationship with the family that's stewarding and owning the land. At the same time, we're learning about what it means to be in Sheffield and to potentially move in the spirit of Elizabeth Freeman as we continue to shape this relationship. Wow, that's so incredible. Uh, I love hearing history of liberation and the fact that that was like, that foundation was already laid for y'all and you're just like stepping in as the stewards to continue that pathway. And I also think that this is like a beautiful example of cross-racial um, mutual support too, because not everything is going to happen in silos and we should have some allies on the other side that are willing to be in reciprocity with us and like honor the history, honor the work that we're trying to do to like reclaim the land um yeah all of those learnings are so important because likely a lot of black BIPOC folks will be buying land from someone that's white but how can we do it in a way that doesn't feel extractive um and Speaking of that, were there any barriers to trying to get land, like when you guys were looking upstate, um, that you felt like because of your race or um, or any other challenges in general of just like money? Like what was the market like too? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. Um, yeah, it was interesting. So the the first place, um, originally, Steph and I were going to get property. Um, we were in contract on a city-owned property in Newburgh because our our preliminary thinking was like, okay, maybe we will 
own this property, root ourselves in this region, and then look for the larger, like, parts of, you know, sections of land or more rural land as we kind of acclimate to what it means to move from, you know, (laughs) Bed-Stuy to this region. And so we were in contract um, before the pandemic and kind of during the pandemic on that property until early summer. And we did, we, you know, what was really exciting about Newburgh um, at that time was their, um, what we thought was like a commitment to not only selling city owned property to developers. And so we went through this process of presenting to the community board who we were, they were looking for more, um, you know, folks of color to be a part of um, what was the momentum in Newburgh and just being a part of make a contribution. Um, So that seemed to be in alignment. As we got down to numbers, you know, we're buying this as-is property, and then we did um, some renovation, very, I would say, renovation quotes that were very, um, um, there was nothing extravagant. It was like, we're going to fix all of these things and then rearrange that so that we can live there safely, (laughs) you know? It's like, (laughs) um, so there was nothing like, you know, we're adding a greenhouse on the roof and then we want the city to pay for that or the, our loan to pay for that. So we were going through this FHA loan process. So I'm not sure. Um, I feel like it's still a good program, the 203K loan, where you, um, you could fold into your mortgage the renovation costs. Um, but with the, the amount that we... Um, that we agreed to pay the city for the property, like the, uh, what do you call it, the offer we made, plus the renovation costs, it would put our property as like the highest valued 900 square foot house on that block or in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of like, well, we're not looking to like create speculation in this part of Newburgh. Like you all, as a city owned property, it's as is, can you come down on the price to then allow us to make these renovations so that we can live there safely um, and not blow out the market and create this like gentrifying thing. And they wouldn't do it. <laughs> they wouldn't do it. And so we were like, well then, cause it doesn't, and we wouldn't be able to get a loan anyway, because if the property doesn't, um, if it doesn't, what do you call it? When you get the appraise, it's not going to appraise for that amount at this time then it's hard to get a mortgage loan. So we were kind of in a hard place. So we had to walk. So then we found this other property in Hyde Park, New York, which was a formerly biodynamic farm. Mm-hmm. It was three acres. It was a beautiful corner lot of land. The house, the farmhouse kind of sat in the back. They still had the bee boxes. It was such a, a beautiful little spot to kind of, start this idea of what it meant to have a cooperative homestead and but the foundation through the process of the home you know inspections we had to get all these engineers and we had a very specific like nugget of money that wouldn't go far in Brooklyn or Queens or you know (laughs) so it was like it's gonna do what it needs to do in like Hyde Park Poughkeepsie New York like it could do this um 
but the what we found is that the foundation needed an, a more amount of work for the bank to even approve the loan for health and safety. And the engineer report was like, this all has to be done before a bank can even give you the wow. whatever. And throughout that whole process, I started to feel like this family, this family is hearing from their broker that like, well, New York, you know, New Yorkers are moving up here now and you can get cash for this. So don't, mm. don't flex too much. Don't, there was so, there was this like inflexibility that was happening. And they didn't agree to do the work on the foundation. And that's the only way we could have. And I, I'm clear because our broker was like, yeah, I think basically their broker told them like, oh, don't agree to any of these. Don't get into this back and forth with this family that needs you to, to have a, get a traditional loan. You're, you're just go, you'll get cash for this. People are flocking up here, you know. Mm. And, you know, I have a very specific name, Diara. And I'm sure, you know, they have our IDs. <laughs> so it's like, I'm sure they're like, are we going to bend over backwards for this family and have to spend more money? Because, you know, it's financial for everybody when these things come up. I mean, I think it was at least 20 grand or more that the foundation needed. Hmm. Um, so when people think about, like, hmm, maybe I'll get that, like, Manhattanite person who could just drop 300K on it or whatever, yeah. <laughs> and I can walk, you know? So it became that type of, we were in rooms, like, battling with, people who have just more cash on hand. And so when I think about like generational wealth and a person being able to, to call up, you know, uncle or grandma or whoever and be like, hey, I need an extra 100K, you know, <laughs> or I need 300K or can you just buy this for me and I'll pay you back. Like that option that I think is not a consistent reality for a lot of families of color, even those that are really um, doing really well, I would say, in the sense of like, whether their work, you know, like I think about creative tech or certain fields has like propelled certain people to a certain earning potential, but it's still not the same thing as having generational wealth or assets throughout your family's, you know, throughout your family a shared idea of like, oh, we all have this amount of land or we own these businesses or we have all these like investments. So we didn't have that to pull in and be like, all right, it, at any point in this land process, we didn't have um, that type of influence on the decision. And then we also just found in the sense of just vision wise, we found that as you were saying, zoning, um, some areas we were looking at are just not friendly to what it means to have cooperative living on a land or more than one um, <clears throat> more than one unit. Like how many accessory dwellings can you have? You know how many um, we call it wells or you know it's it's very it can be very specific and um, create barriers around what it means to also just be able to live in community too. Mm. Yeah, so many different components and like bureaucracy to getting land that you don't even think about until you're in the process. And 
Yeah, I've also, so one of my stints of work was um, doing, supporting sustainable agriculture farmers in receiving USDA assistance. And we would also get a lot of uh, requests from BIPOC farmers that were looking to attain land. And that was like the number one question of how do I get money to get land? And there's very few programs that allow that. And, And a lot of them still to this day, we're talking about like, I've been calling all of these centers and still receiving discrimination in order to get the land. So yeah, someone, the landowner would feel more comfortable. It'd be less um, less of a headache on their end if they can just get a lump sum of money. And in the pandemic, it was weird because like with rentals, um, in New York, at least, prices were cheaper, but to buy a home or to buy land, it seemed like the prices were exasperated. Yeah, I think that part was was really interesting. And um, yeah, when I think about the way that we even got that nugget <laughs> together was work from different types different um fields you know my field my work mostly in the city was around uh, you know leadership in the in arts and culture education um and consulting so between for myself and my partner in the house you know the household it you know Steph is a part of another cooperative in Brooklyn Brooklyn Packers a worker-owned cooperative. And so, yeah, it's like, okay, the, the kind of the being partnered um, opportunity to, like, save a bit more. That's another thing, too, right? Um, basically pulling money from different types of work <laughs> that pay it at a different, in a different way. It's just a different economic thing to have like a consulting content creation something that um it's just like this idea of value and ways that people doing food-based work or land-based work um the earning potential there's like ceilings that are spoken to and unspoken to because of i think how we've how this society has structured this food as a commodity in a certain way and the ways that certain people who probably, you know, you know, when I think about, you know, land ownership being predominantly white and um, his, the history of land ownership and that connection to capitalism specifically. And the fact that there are a number of uh, land based folks of color and, and all people working and farming who are consistently trying to figure out the sustainability part, just sustaining life, aside from actually putting money aside from that specific work to buy land, you know? So it's like, how do you, yeah, I'm not sure if we would have been able to do it um, 
like I'm, I'm clear that like the work that I was doing before helped to leverage us in being able to launch this project, even this land that we don't own, but just being able to start a business um, or make a transition of any sort, having done work in other ways that, um, that for some reason have a different value set or, or, or this idea of value right in our society so yeah it's I mean most well not most people but some people like in the fields that we work in where work is precarious there's not like that's also I, f- I don't know I've never tried to get a loan but I believe that would also make it more difficult to get a loan too of not having that like steady pay stub to present to them um and yeah speaking of like the incentives for farmers that are trying to like do the right thing like do specialty farming not monocrop um use regenerative agriculture techniques like it's harder for them to sustain themselves in the market and let it alone, they're like already the minority. Like in New York State alone, what out of the fifteen thousand farmers, there's like four hundred of four hundred something are actually black. And of that number, um, majority of them are in debt. They don't. They're not even making a salary. Um, so. Yeah, there's all of these barriers to ownership. And then once you get the ownership, what is the model to sustain it? Um, Which I'd love to know what you all are thinking. Like, what is your model? Your organizational structure, which you talked about would be multi-stakeholder. And like, how is that shaping to create a sustainable model for you? Mm Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, I'll speak from the fact that our the amount of land that we're stewarding in full is about seven-ish acres and that we've started farming primarily like an acre and plus or so. So I feel like our model, um, I'll speak from that experience because when I think about farmers who have a lot more acreage, and then um, production farm is um, their primary model. I have thoughts about that as well. But given this like small kind of micro farm structure, um, we're thinking a lot about what it means to embed in our distribution. Um, so there's, um, we distribute to Stagecoach Tavern, which is on the, um, at the lodge nearby, we sell at a local market, um, Random Harvest in Hillsdale. Um, we have a partnership with them, Volunteers in Medicine in the Berkshires. Um, they provide free um, health care to underinsured and insured, uh, underinsured and uninsured folks. Um, and we also provide some to the CSA model for Brooklyn Packers. So some things go down to the city um, and we're so new. And so what I would say, what we earned from that 
early kind of exploration of like community partner kind of donation, some sale selling. And um, oh, we also sold, have been selling like, cause we have a good amount of um, medicinal like flowers and to different, um, you know, traditional like medicine maker, uh, medicine maker partners. So that's been an interesting partnership too. So we think about like partnerships and how can we really like focus our distribution on, um, you know, BIPOC and, and also other organizations that are supporting access for BIPOC folks for this type of like, we, use, we do think about um, regenerative agriculture and are um, applying those practices. Um, so we think about that and what we know as we're also bringing in our other skill sets around programming to, so that the model for the farm, the farm is, we're not dependent on the farm, especially at this stage to produce enough income for the three of us or for other team members and other co-op members in the future. It's this expanded idea of, of like the farm as a part of um, a, um, diversified business model where it's like, you know, we hosted a retreat for uh, BIPOC and um, land stewards and farmers at the lodge. Like we hosted them though. And we've, you know, we're doing, we're doing different, taking different approaches around what it means to be a farm. But that's because we're also channeling kind of trying to come from an asset space place too. Um, this is our first, all of our first year, last year was our first year farming in this way. Um, I met Dee of Rocksteady like in 2013 at farm school and did farm school for like a stint. Um, Ashni was gardening at home. Steph was in food distribution. Um, so we had our hands like in the ecosystem of food in different ways and food and community. But like farming in this way was our first year. And so... You know, I know that um, there are people that have been doing it and have so much to offer, like what practices I think support sustainability. And I think what we're bringing is also like, how do we take the pressure off the food production to be, because that also, I mean, that raises prices, that it does all the things that make um, complicate the way that we feel that food should be a part of um, the liberated way that we live in our relationship to the land. So it's, it's a harder nugget to like <laughs> address when you're thinking of like someone who's growing, you know, we have an acre plus or so, but someone who might be growing one acre of one type of crop and then two acres of that and seven. So it's like food production is the thing it's like, how do we help like set the tone for more an integrated approach to business models so that farms, people can focus still, like if you're a gifted, you know, beekeeper or, you know, it's like your thing is, you know, the caretaking and of, of animal stewardship and that I feel like people should be able to focus to their strengths, but how can they be a part of expanded business models so that it's like all, all of what we need to live doesn't need to come from one thing that we do. Like farming is one thing I do, 
do I, should I depend on that action, that daily action to provide everything I need? Or is there a way that in partnership with my, uh, you know, us specifically at Mumbet's Freedom Farm, it's like, we're thinking about programming, we're thinking about other things that support that. Um, I mean, we really, we also didn't pay ourselves this past year um, so that we could figure out the model, you know? Um, but that's because we're, we're doing other things, which creates a whole other conversation around like capacity and black, you know, black women and femmes and folks doing the most, you know, to, like, to just make it work. But we think, we do think there's something to more integrated business models and, uh, more intentional ecosystems around what distribution, how distribution happens um, that can take the pressure off the food growing specifically to provide everything for everyone involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the beauty of working cooperatively is that you can tap into all of these different skill sets that you bring and also all of you already come from like a multifaceted background of skill sets um, that you can now bring into the space so that it's not only about farming which you know is like the foundation of creating community and um, and can be a beautiful way of just like modeling modeling how our food ecosystem should be based off of nature like we need more examples of that but also allowing it to be a space again where people can like skillshare create community and um and and i also love the idea of focusing on partnerships because then and maybe you all are already already doing this, but you can be in partnership about like what crops are you growing for that season, and um, specifically meeting not just the needs of who lives on the land, but the community needs. Like, what are the types of crops that they're interested in um, in sharing with their networks? Um, yeah, I love that, and we're we're definitely like attuned to like what is like what are the culturally cultural specific and culturally like relevant crops that are supporting the people who we want to serve and be in partnership with mm -hmm. and what like what are the ways that that could and what is the balance of like other crops too that are consistently um asked for, appreciated, purchase, and doing all of that in a way of, from a, a place of mindfulness. Um, and even, yeah, through a partnership even, I mean, I think that gives sometimes more access to grants as well for farmers. It can really open up doors when, you know, if a farm's like, oh, we have this partnership with this hospital, or, you know, when we were, working with them, it was towards the end of the year that we really kind of started that with them, but we're, so that's volunteers in medicine. And so that we dropped off what we had a lot of that 
we felt like in conversation with them would support who was primarily coming through the space. And so we got great feedback about like, okay, this stick up, you know, this stayed around for a little while, this disappeared, you know, within an hour, you know, this was all gone in an hour. And just thinking about listening in it all too, like how do we listen to what people really want and need? And then who knows, maybe in the future we can work with them specifically to say like, hey, let's go in on a grant to be able to provide even more mm-hmm. in some way, you know? So yeah, but, and, and again, like when I think about capacity, like the capacity, if you're a farmer who's managing a lot of land or animals, et cetera, the capacity, if you're primarily solo or family farm and you're not working cooperatively in the cooperative structure, to be able to chisel out partnerships, apply for grants, all that, that, that I, I'm sure, because even in just this one year of doing it cooperatively, you know, just as a newbie, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how, why we would expect people to be able to do that, um, solo or even a family farm. So yeah, it's really key, the cooperative part. And it takes a lot of support too, because we, we're getting support for, this, for the organization. We're getting relational support from people that support the relational part of cooperative. <laughs> because working together, you know, it brings up all the things, you know? Mm-hmm. And when you thought, you thought you had clarity, then it's like, oh, wait, there's, there's so many more questions. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so much more to sort out. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like constant layers to work through when you're working with other people. You learn a lot more about yourself, too. And you spoke of some of the benefits, um, like these, this relational support. And what are some other benefits that you've experienced while working cooperatively? Mm. Yeah, I think relational support, yes, learning about yourself, I affirm that too. Um, There's always a different way to think about doing something. And when there are multiple people at the table or, you know, the the not, you know, no table just outside. when there are multiple people involved and multiple voices and minds and hearts, um, the opportunities are expanded. You know, the opportunity for what can be is expansive and can deepen. So, um, yeah, the ways of working, like kind of really being able to rethink like how you work as a person, um, even how you've worked with other people. Like every time you're with a new constellation of people, there are different needs. And so um, it's like an exercise in mindfulness. Um, And it just feels, it feels more, um, yeah, I I tend to think that a lot of us who want to be in community or work cooperatively, there's this, um, we're also like healing things around like what a chosen family is and like what 
um, healthy family <laughs> can feel like. So it's also an opportunity to, to grow and, and develop relationships that can feel like chosen familyhood, you know, because you're really, um, whether it's a small cooperative or a larger cooperative, if everyone's coming to that circle from a place of like, how can we succeed? How can we thrive? Um, I know it's impacted my six-year-old. I know it. I, it's, so I think legacy-wise, cooperatives, I think, can support people being able to practice more consistently healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and not in this way of like, what's a perfect relationship or not, but being able to practice from a, a place of courageousness because it can get challenging. And I think sometimes when you get into like nuclear family models or even just singlehood in which you're like, you have friends maybe in different friend groups, cooperatives create like this intentional shared vision, like intentional um, opportunity for like growth and and liberated um, way of life. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely experienced, I've experienced that um, in this project. And I think even just trying to f- start this project, because <laughs> Dandelion Homesteads actually, um, we kind of were exploring that since about, I would say like 10 years. And so we kind of gathered different groups of people together in Brooklyn. And, you know, life happens and things like shift and change. And then we gather the next group and that shift and change. You know, so, um, yeah, it's this constant like practicing, like building the muscle for like courageous connecting with people. And I think that I've seen a benefit on like the next generation of kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it keeps us all fresh, too. You know? Yeah, that's so valuable to be able to grow up in that dynamic because um, in school, we always talk about, like, teamwork and working as a team. And, like, that's the foundation of us Uh, working effectively in school but beyond that when we're in the workforce but we don't really get to learn about how we come to common ground with each other how we make decisions that are not one-sided and it's definitely easier when you have shared values with people and they're like and each person is doing their own internal work outside of the group dynamic to, um, to, yeah, to really show up and to do it in a way where it's for the benefit of the greater whole and not just to like, even if it's something they don't completely agree with, they know that it aligns with the shared vision. Um, and that's something to like always come back to. Whereas in other dynamics where it's not your chosen family, um, yeah, it can just be a lot more difficult because there's always that confliction of, of values. 
Um, how do you all make decisions, by the way? I know it's a small group, but there's a lot of facets to the co-op that I'm sure you need to come to consensus about. I love the timing of this question because because we're actually literally tomorrow <laughs> revisiting this question and going to seek support. So, you know, our kind of our coaches through community, I mean, Cooperative Development Institute, and we're working with Relational Uprising. Um, we're going to bring that question in support with these two bodies because we've moved from a place of consensus, this idea of like, how do we all get to consensus? Um, because we are such a small group. Um, certain decisions we've asked for, like some of the folks who were part of Dandelion um, in the kind of the Brooklyn stage. And um, they're still a part of, I would say, the vision in, a, in an advisory capacity. So we'll seek out advisory support from those trusted folks who are part of that, like the earlier dandelion development. So for a certain, certain type of decisions, those daily decisions, we're literally like, we need to clarify and fine tune really that process. Because what, what it, and I would say last season and it's looks like, um, you know, whether it's presenting an idea or a next step, and we all kind of give our um, opinion or recommendations around that. And we ask each other questions around that thinking. And then we generally try to have a certain amount of, you know, even if someone came to that particular circle with, um, maybe a divergent thought that maybe other like two people, maybe it's one person and then two person, two people on the same page. It's like, how can we, how can this something be either adjusted or changed or detail about this be changed or updated to make this feel for everyone to trust this decision. Um, so being able to incorporate as much as possible. We weren't always, I would say successful in, sometimes the speed at which we were trying to make decisions and we thought a lot about that and just we've been kind of slowing down um, our decision-making and our communication too. So, so our communication shift has helped, I think will help our decision-making moving forward. So we, we often take time to do a resonance listening. So if someone's sharing, you know, we have this larger question one person shares, we resonate back to them. You know, I was really with you when you said this, or I really felt when you shared that. Um, I resonate with what you did. Before we get into response mode or reactionary something, <laughs> um, we practice like a, so that's, we started practicing that resonance listening in the fall, like late fall. It's been really great to have had that in the summer when things were like, like this, felt like this. Um, but I think that will inform our process of like, you know, taking a moment for everyone to listen, take it in and resonate, present different questions around that, resonate with that too. Um, but we do need support with like 
I would say agreeing on a system, whether it's like rubric, um, a rubric system, or um, especially for like um, more in the moment daily decisions or like weekly decisions, something that's more structured. Um, yeah, because we also did have two folks um, camp on the land and become like volunteer, consistent volunteers that were just a part of the team for um, a good amount of the summer. So our team was four and then five at one point. So I think we need the, like a more structured with always with an idea of like, how do we still have flow? Um, but something structured that's really transparent for people who are becoming a part of the team and for us too, to just be able to plug into. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I do know that our experience with the resonance listening and our commitment to consensus, consensus with support, even if there's like a need for a shift or change or, um, is kind of the goal of our decision-making at this stage, but we're diving right back into that this month. Resonance listening sounds so powerful because that allows the person that's speaking to really feel heard and understood, even if they're not completely agreed with. Cause I feel like when someone doesn't, um, like there's confliction of ideas. The person that's expressing first is always like, well, you just don't understand me. You're not listening to me. So to start with that framework of, yes, I'm here, I'm present, I'm listening. I resonated with this, even if I don't resonate with the entire thing that you said. Um, but yeah, having a set group process um, that anyone can just fall into and and evolve from is really important too. So I wanna hear more about the programs that you all offer for the community. Like how are you fostering that sense of sanctuary and skill building? Yeah, okay. Um, so I would say um, I'll start from the we recently um, posted on social media yesterday about the sweat lodge that we built in partnership with some beautiful chosen family community, community members, some local, some from far, to came and helped us to build this lodge. So um, from a healing standpoint, we've offered um, several sweats in that lodge, um, people who, so Ashni is of, um, has received like blessing from her elder in the tradition that she sweats in to pour sweats. So she has poured a, a few sweats and then um, there's been another community of Lat um, Latinx folks who have accessed the, um, and indigenous, who have accessed the lodge to sweat as well. Um, so that kind of this idea of holding space for ceremony um, community prayer, um, that's been something that's been consistent. And um, we want to build on that this year. Um, yes, you know, continue to have the lodge hold space 
for prayer and, and community lift, uh, upliftment. Um, but we want to incorporate some other um, like practices and open up or just, I think other things happened also on the land. Um, that particular sweats are definitely in the indigenous tradition. The people at the sweat are very diverse um, uh, groups of folks, primarily folks of color. Um, but, you know, we want to bring in, um, yeah, this idea of like, what does it mean to, to heal and like in a spirituality way, like through like movement, um, I'm connected to Tagen at um, Yad Wellness in Catskill. Tagen and I go back to Brooklyn <laughs> and the community space that I was a part of co-managing in Brooklyn. He used to do run like um, a capoeira um, group there. And so I'm really excited to maybe connect with him about having hold us on the land um, which is for me also spiritual practice. Um, so we wanna expand like how people are tapping into spirit on the land, whether we hold space or we offer the um, space for people to do that. Um, we've also had families like in support of what does it mean to have, um, be a space where people feel like they're connecting back to the land or to each other. So we've had families come and camp on the land and and in addition to them kind of folding into like our cooperative meals and, uh, you know, being around the fire, you know, we've gone on hikes with families and sometimes they support out in, in the farm as well. But then there's, there's this feeling of like, how do we, um, it's just, it was such a, such a um, inspiring and like nourishing experience to have families of color, like on the land and just being on the land. So we want to do more of that. Um, we want to do more of hosting that and offering that for, and family, I mean, family is, is anyone who, whether it's bringing two of your best friends or, you know, partner groups or, you know, fam families who have kids, you know, the same ages, like we want to have more of that. So that's been really beautiful. Um, we also had a really great experience with Rites of Passage uh, Empowerment Project. It's a, um, a Rites of Passage developmentally supportive group for girls and femmes in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And um, they came on the land for like a sensory experience. And, and um, so they were on the farm. It was about tasting. It was about experiencing um, we also did storytelling around the fire. We made um, salsa and pickles from what we picked from the land. So we want to do more. Um, so that was a youth kind of group, like the I would say the primary youth group that came last year. That was mostly youth. The other groups were like blended ages more. Um, so we want to do more like youth specific, whether educational and or experiential education experiences like that. Um, we, as you know, artists, I'm a dancer and Steph dances. He's a DJ, Ashni is an artist too. And so, and then some of the folks that have come and been with us on the land are artists. So 
we're looking forward to arts programming, more intentional arts programming this year. It happened last year. People would bring their banjo, their guitar, their drum, and art happened. We moved on the land, we danced, but we're exploring like some intentional art arts programming this year, which is exciting. Um, what was the other thing, programming we did? Oh yeah, I mean, we've also, yeah, the retreat that we did with black farmers and land stewards. So people, they basically were at the, the lodge, but we just wanted, we, we held space and hosted them um, for that, those few days. So we've been thinking about um, what it means for groups who need to go through a certain process together to in partnership between us, the, the lodge and us to be able to do programming that supports that. Um, and that, and people don't have to stay overnight. We also had a really beautiful preliminary um, start of this partnership with the Elizabeth Freeman Center. Um, they do some, so their um, organization supports folks who have experienced uh, trauma in domestic situations, like sexual trauma, domestic violence, um, families, individuals. So we're thinking about like, in support of the practitioners at Elizabeth Freeman too, as well as their clients, like how do we, uh, we've talked with them in a preliminary way about how, what would it mean to have hold space for um, connection on our land um, and safe, safety and sanctuary. Um, that's in the early stages, but we are thinking about like what that looks like. Um, and I feel like groups like that, we would look to tailor a program that felt really aligned. Um, and so, yeah, I think those are the, like our primaries. We have like our more intentional arts programming, continued like healing and community, community gathering. We also have, I mean, just in the spirit of like gathering people, we have um, every third Saturday, we have work parties, um, which, you know, I sometimes would, um, this idea of work and party, it's called, our work party parties are called labor, uh, labor of love. And to your point of like, um, what does it mean to be working on the land and infusing that with it not feeling like a burden or bringing up things, historical traumas. And, um, but so it's an opportunity that like volunteers can come and support very specific projects we have, but we always gather during these days as well. So like people can come and get their hands in the dirt and, and, and do that all together, which is, has been really beautiful points of connection for people. And we always like have a, a meal together after, or it becomes other things too. Um, we had a celebration for the Emancipation Day for Elizabeth Freeman. And that was a fuller day program that we are excited to do again this year. So that's like kind of a one program that has its, its own kind of container too. Um, so yeah, we wanna, build on what we did last year in a way that um, 
where we have capacity still, you know, but build on the programming in ways that um, amplify our partnerships and really like root the work in the partnerships, the programming in the partnerships. Mm. Y'all are doing, oh, I mute it. Y'all are doing so much. Wow. I'm so impressed at how much you've been able to do in the past year. But like you were saying, it comes down to those relationships, those partnerships, so that you don't have to take it all on your own. And if somebody has an idea that aligns, I'm guessing y'all are pretty open to collaborating in that way, too. And um, yeah, and just and tailoring your offerings to specific groups so that it is intergenerational and that it's healing on all levels, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Um, we had so much more than a farm. It's like, it's this dynamic of holism. Like, what does it look like for us to show up as our whole selves in all these different, in all these different dimensions that we are as a human um, and share those gifts with each other? Uh, so take me to 10 years from now, what would an experience of visiting Mumbit's Freedom Farm be like? And you can make this multi-sensory really <laughs> take us on a visual journey. <laughs> 10 years, what? Okay. Mm. That's such a good question see if I can like hone in the actual imagery. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna go with like the first thing that came up, which is, it's the weekends of the music festival. Okay. And so within this music festival, people are witnessing musical experiences and performances at different parts of the land at different times. And there's, you know, tables up where other, you know, folks of the region are like bringing their, what they offer, what they make, like artisans are set up to like sell and connect and network. Um, and the farm, people are picking up their share, their CSA farm share at this time. This weekend too, they're picking up their share. Um, the performers of the music festival involve the youth drumline that practices in Pittsfield. And, you know, maybe Michelle Indigo Cello, who I think lives in the region somewhere. <laughs> Um, but like these regional, like it's like this regional specific thing where it's like pulling, um, there's a cool like dance party in the barn um, with, and like jam session, you know, that happens. And one morning, you know, different folks from, from the region and beyond the region are meeting in the woods to go for a hike. 
before joining each other for breakfast, share breakfast around the fire. Um, yeah, and maybe like, you know, our youth worker owners, <laughs> our youth team of worker owners are managing a project that weekend or something. It's a pretty full weekend, but I'm, I'm seeing what I see is an expansion of capacity that involves more, what I'm clear in like, this is kind of, you know, this thing about non-attachment that speaks to me um, of like, we're, I'm a founder of this, um, but it's not mine and it's not ours, the three of us. So when I think about 10 years, I'm like, wow, I don't even know if I'm actually facilitating something 10 years from now. I'm there, I'm enjoying it. I feel myself there and loving it. Um, but then who knows? Like, I think it, it would be an expansion of capacity, expansion of worker owners, people from other dandelion homesteads coming to this space to like connect. So I'm seeing it as a place of like, for the ecosystem of people wanting to do and live in liberated way, do land-based work and live in liberated ways to come and be together. And 10 years from now, even if it's not me, I know I'm enjoying that. I'm gonna be there. <laughs> And there'll be more hands on deck and more capacity. And the integration that we've been talking about, which is all these facets of people being able to be their full selves. Um, yeah, and so I see, I see that performance. I see the performances, I see the shared leadership and like the development of new leadership. Um, yeah, and then 10 years from now, my um, my six-year-old will be 16 years old. So I'm like, I'm seeing him leading a workshop, you know, that would be, mm -hmm. that would be nice. Um, so yeah, I see it as like a true sanctuary that people have continued to co-create beyond our like original, you know, seed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it becomes this hub, this hive, this hive of of different bees that are the members and that are the community that are like creating this, um, yeah, this beautiful like kaleidoscope of different things um and even though it's just one weekend all of those things can happen because the capacity is increased and i love that the youth would ideally be like the primary stewards eventually too that once those processes and foundations are laid they can just continue um to spread that so thank you so much Sierra, this is really beautiful to dream and learn with you. Thank you. I've, it's I I appreciate the questions and the thoughtfulness um, in this conversation, and just the opportunity to learn and to reflect 
um, and to dream as well. And um, yeah, it's very affirming when, um, yeah, it's just thinking about this work and continuing to meet and connect with people who believe in cooperative life. And it's, it's just affirming and grounding, you know? Um, so I appreciate you. Thank you for what you're doing as well. This podcast runs off of labors of love. There are many ways you can be in reciprocity with us. If you are or know of a collective model that aligns, let's connect so we can spotlight the story. Share episodes, especially with your friends and family who aren't aware of collective models but are unfulfilled with this economy. You can also visit our Open Collective Foundation page in the show notes for ways to gift us in time or money. With your support, we can continue archiving the stories that aren't being elevated but are necessary for our collective